0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben.
1: And I'm Sarah. Thank
0: you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah?
1: doing all right uh calgary has settled into another cold snap yes of like minus 20 yep. weather mm-hmm. so a little chilly how are you
0: i'm doing all right um i'm sort of like slowly coming out of um kind of a funk that i was in just in time for the christmas season and nice warm fuzzy feelings about everyone
1: Nice, warm, fuzzy feelings to keep you warm when the sweaters can't. Yeah. Cool. I am ready to dive into this episode. I'm kind of excited about the research I have to share.
0: So I really don't know what we're getting ourselves into with this one. Like there's evidence a plenty to suggest that this will be bad, like a bad movie. Okay. And there's evidence a few to suggest this might be a good movie and i i just don't know because i'd never even heard of this movie before this week we are watching die Nacht unter satan from 1959 directed by victor Travas. it is also known by the english title the head and it is also also known by the also german title des satans nachtesklaven do so you, you want
1: to translate any of that for I'll, us as yeah, well?
0: uh, So the original German title directly translated would be The Naked Woman and the Devil. And the second German title would be translated as The Devil's Naked Woman Slave. Okay. Uh, I'll get into what's the deal with those titles later, but it's been...
1: One week since he looked at me.
0: A long time since we've seen a horror movie out of Germany.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: Perhaps for understandable reasons. In 1952, uh, a new adaptation of Alrauna had been produced in Germany that focused more than anything on the melodrama of that story. We watched a silent version of Alrauna back in 1928. We judged it was not horror, no. which is why we did not watch the nearly identical sound remake from 1930, and also not this 1952 version. But I bring this 1952 version of Alrauna Rauna up for the reason that that movie, made in West Germany, oh, we should probably explain West Germany, huh? We'll get there. That movie intentionally downplayed the horror and the sex in that story. Uh, the director of the film said the audience didn't want horror. The war was still deep in their bones. Mm. And that made me realize that we haven't seen a horror movie out of Germany since before World War II. And listen, Sarah, as everyone who knows me knows, I don't know anything about history, but I'm pretty sure something happened to Germany in cool. the war.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um It's interesting that you're like, this 1952 El Rauna takes out the horror and the sex, because that's, those are the two vibes I'm getting from this title for today's movie. Yes. So very interesting. Our last German film was in 1936. Uh, It was Fairman Maria, Mm. directed by Franz Weisbar. That's back in episode 57. Woof. That's Uh, a long time ago. Yeah, over 200 episodes ago. Wow. (laughs) So... A lot has happened. By 1936, the Nazis had already taken power in Germany, um, and that's part of why we praised Fairman Maria so highly. There had been a. Hor- because
0: of its anti Nazi stance.
1: Yes. Yes. I apologize. I should have made that crystal clear. There had been a previous horror movie out of Nazi Germany in 1935. Uh, it was the uh, 35 adaptation of Der Student von Prague, starring Anton Walbrook, directed by Arthur Robeson. Um, that's episode 56. It does not have anti Nazi sentiment. No. Um, so it ranked much lower on the <laughs> list. Still a horror movie, but, uh, you know, it gives you bad vibes, you know? Mm, mm. But that was the last time that we saw horror in. Germany. And just to kind of repaint the scene, by 1936, the Nazis were in power and UFA, the main studio there, and the film industry at large were controlled by the government, specifically Joseph Gibbels and his uh, Reichsfachschaft film group. Committee? Administration? Dictatorship. Dictatorship. One thing I just want to point out as well that uh, Gail Bills brought in is that uh, there was no longer any film criticism, just film observation. Yes.
0: This film was 93 minutes long and had sound. Had these
1: characters and they accomplished this thing. Yeah. Now, during Nazi Germany, including during World War II from 1939 to 1945, there was a lot of emphasis on using film for propaganda, whether that be like gay German folktales and gay German like pride in our country and specifically in uh, like our true German blood and propaganda that's like, hey, we don't like those people over there. Um, aren't they bad? And we're going to compare them to rats. They also had escapist film that would be like melodrama, musicals, comedy, That's where you would also get some of the folktales coming in.
0: Yeah, the escapist stuff tended to do better at the box office than like the actual propaganda stuff.
1: Yeah, that's because people don't like being told what to do.
0: (laughs) But people don't mind forgetting. That there's a war going on. There are troubles. It's also people don't mind having a reason to um, look the other way when fascism is happening and maybe they don't want to address that
1: yeah so that's kind of state of the union i'll say at this point this is not a history podcast and it is also not a war podcast so i'm going to skip ahead and it's nearly the end of world war ii i'm going to skip ahead to february 1945 with the yalta conference where our big three of the allies the us the uk and the ussr Um, They discussed, you know, hey, we're about to win the European side of the war. What do we want the post-war organization of Germany to look like? And ultimately, they discussed and decided upon, okay, well, we'll split Germany into four occupied zones. The fourth zone being France. There would need to be demilitarization and denazification of Germany. And specifically for Soviets... There would need to be war reparations from Germany. Now, at the Potsdam Conference in later 1945, in like July, August, they confirmed the above and kind of set things into motion, specifically with eastern Germany going to Russia, the south southwest of Germany going to the United States, northwestern going to the UK, and southwestern going to France. In Berlin, the capital, we have a similar kind of division. Eastern Berlin would go to Russia, northwest to France, central west to the UK, and southwest Berlin to the US. Now, point of fact, this is also administration zones, not like we're taking over, this is our land. The idea was these are going to be areas that we will, you know, split the group project work and uh, I'll tackle this you tackle that and we'll come together and it'll be a whole project. It'll be a sovereign nation, but we're all kind of administrating our own areas.
0: Yeah, it's this isn't a history podcast, but for those of you who use it as a history podcast, it's worth just reminding that like Germany as a nation was done. Like everyone in the government, like all of the infrastructure, like it it couldn't function as a nation. So the idea of these administrative zones was like
1: Get, getting you back up on your feet germany well it was also seen as necessary for the denazification yes, right absolutely yes like hitler committed suicide so there's no like head of state now but also all the people who lead the different levels of government yeah, they're all nazis well they're all nazis they all got to get got. yeah uh, they all got to go yes <laughs> let me, people were executed but also they they just need to not be in power anymore
0: exactly so there's just like there's no one to run anything if these guys didn't step in so that's why it's it's not conquering it's it's administrating
1: that was the intent yeah now if you know your history you know nazi germany expanded its borders including to poland Mm -hmm. poland was specifically liberated from nazis by the soviets and the soviets were like cool so poland's ours now and that ownership became solidified in the potsdam conference as well so that kind of gives you the point of view the perspective of stalin and the ussr of like no these are ours this is ours yeah
0: everything we marched through on the way to berlin that's that's ours yeah you have to understand that russia won world war Two in europe and their attitude towards the us and the uk was like Yeah, I mean, you guys helped, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So after the war, um, it's 1946, and kind of leading up into 1949, these administration zones were created. There would be border checks between each, but from my understanding, the Western side, you know, you could kind of move freely. You would still need to check at these places, these border checks, but, like, it wasn't a huge deal. Eastern Germany, pretty locked down. Now, as part of the denazification, As we kind of already said, the political structures, the cultural administrations, they all need to be, uh, for lack of a better word, revamped. Uh, Let's turn things over. Um, And this is also for like economic associations and groups and such. So people would be removed. They may have gone on trial either literally with the Nuremberg trials or like a social trial of like, hey, I heard Bob worked with the Nazis. Let's just ostracize him for now.
0: Cancel culture was a real problem in <laughs> post-war Germany.
1: And in revamping these cultural institutions, uh, this would include goebbels Reichfachschaft. So film Yeah. in Germany, mm-hmm. the existing film infrastructure all happened to be in Eastern Germany. Mm.
0: Yes. Um,
1: so the USSR had theaters open like immediately like may 1945 we're opening the cinemas we're getting people in let's import some of our own soviet films get them watching stuff and they uh created the production company difa in may 1946 to like immediately start making films of course it's state-backed yeah um and everything has to go through the soviet's uh propaganda machine So things that would be created would be propaganda that would be like pro-Soviet kind of propaganda, like against uh, capitalism. Mm -hmm. But they would also create more escapist types of things, like really big into Westerns, um, (laughs) children's tales, folk tales, uh, really big into biographies. But what's interesting is even in the eastern side of Germany, you see people starting to use film to reflect and understand like what the heck germany just went through yeah so there's like one of the very first films is um translated as murderers among us Mm. and that's made in eastern germany and it's like well you know i was a good person but that person down the street he was a nazi he was a murderer they're all among us so we have to like root them out
0: (laughs) when you talk about how all the film infrastructure was in eastern germany i feel like it's good to stop And just, like, remind or maybe even inform some of our listeners that... So, you know, Germany split into eastern and western zones. Berlin split into eastern and western zones. Berlin, not located in the center of the country, located in the eastern zone. Yes. So, um, with Berlin kind of having a lot of the film infrastructure and being in eastern Germany. Um, Because you and I were talking about this the other night, but, like when you're a kid and you kind of hear about this stuff, you get this image of like, yeah, they just split the country straight down the middle, right? Which is not quite how it happened. No,
1: and Berlin being like right in the middle there. Yeah. Kind of split right through. But no, that's not... Berlin was completely surrounded by Eastern Germany. Yes. uh, Which is, yes, a very important thing to note here because I do make reference to it later. Yeah, it's complicated. We'll get there. (laughs) In Western Germany, they need to build up that infrastructure from scratch and they kind of centered everything around Munich which is kind of in like the the US administered zone. Part of this meant
0: a bunch of Americans in Munich looking at some Germans being
1: like you want to be a star don't you? Oh god. Um so the Motion Picture of America Association lobbied yeah. the MPAA, to, yeah. Yeah, lobbied to have the US administration of West Germany remove the import quota that was originally there during like the Weimar Republic Mm. um, to be like, we're going to focus on like German films and you can only import this many foreign films. Mm -hmm. So now you have like a shit ton of American specifically, but some UK stuff coming into Western Germany, that stuff boomed super big. Um, But then they also use that money with the boom in cinemas to build the infrastructure and have multiple production companies come up. So Eastern Germany has its singular. Eventually, they do get a second production company. Uh, Western Germany got lots of startups. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Around this time as well, like 1946, a huge increase of people heading to the cinemas. Because shit's shitty all around them. Let's go for a little escape. A very popular genre arose in 1946 called rubble films Hmm. that were basically like shooting around the rubble in germany and showing like the day-to-day life of someone living in specifically western germany and this is also where you see films coming out reckoning with nazi actions for example if you had any war films come out where it happened to star a soldier like uh, the characters a soldier it would show that soldier as being like Likely a political, or perhaps even against the war, but having to do it because of a government they disagree with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That sort of thing. And, like, reckoning with, like, what the country had gone through, but also rewriting what actually happened.
0: Yeah. It was sort of, like, a little bit of revisionist history so that everyone could...
1: Live with themselves. Yes. So that's, like, the film industry. I'm going to expand out to all industries right now. Denazification also meant de industrializing Germany. Germany was like a central hub in Europe for mm-hmm. producing coal, steel, a whole bunch of shit. Now they're de industrializing it. A lot of that machinery from factories would end up going to France for reparations. But Germany is now like losing um, a lot of its like economic power yeah. as a result, right? Germany as a whole was dealing with a lot of rampant inflation. Um, They had high taxes. Uh, 80% of their income would go to taxes, kind Mm. of high taxes. And that's for like even Joe Blow down the street. Come 1947, 48, there's a shift. Western Germany, um, because all of its like like administrative countries, like the country is administrating its area, uh, are pro-nato western germany as a whole joins nato they also joined some other trade coalitions like the european common market coalition the western union which was like a very early precursor to like the european union and so that's showing like hey we want to participate with the wider economic community where we're trying to get back on our feet To help with the rampant inflation, Western Germany in 1948 introduces the Deutschmark to replace the Reichsmark. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Eastern Germany doesn't like this. Soviets don't like this for complicated historical reasons that I won't get into. I mention this because of like tensioning around Cold War times. Yes. So the Deutsche Mark gets introduced in 1948. Uh, Also during this time in like this year, uh, they changed those taxes from being 80% to like 18% for the average person. Yeah. Still 80% if you make over a certain wage, but significantly better for getting people back on their feet.
0: But again, like, you know, high taxes are bad, but when all of your infrastructure has been bombed to smithereens, you do need some income from somewhere to create the country again.
1: Yeah, so with these things, yes. inflation got under control a little bit. Germany's kind of getting back onto its feet. It's showing that, like, okay, we're on the rise economically, We're or at least uh, ri- the rise towards stabilized economy. Sure. In 1950, the U.S. was like, hey, let's stop deindustrializing Germany and, like, r- let them reindustrialize, but also maybe rearm them. Do you know why?
0: Uh Well, presumably because, you know, if I'm the Soviet Union and I control Eastern Germany, I'm going to start putting, like, missile bases and shit in there. And if you're the West, you want your side to, like, get powerful so it can be a proxy ally and things mm-hmm. like that? You're sort of right. Okay.
1: uh The Korean War starts in 1950. Right. Sure. um So... That's where the proxy stuff is going on. Mm. In Germany, Western Germany, uh, the U.S. is like, let's let them rearm themselves. so That way we have a stronger line against the Soviet threat. Yeah. The way they kind of got around this was, okay, Western Germany can start to rearm themselves, but they aren't able to actually mobilize any military action any mobilization of military action would be administered by um, a european coalition so not just western germany it would be like the eu basically yeah,
0: nato and stuff
1: yeah fun fact a ton of germans um people who lived in western germany didn't want to rearm yeah uh, some of the films that would be shown and made and whatever would be war films and would also be like pro rearmament of Western Germany, which is just to say that both sides leverage propaganda. Yes. So, with all of these changes, reindustrialization, new currency, Western Germany is seeing lots of economic prosperity. Um, Eastern Germany as well, but to a much lesser extent. And that prosperity extends to film. So, early 1950, uh, we saw... Um, film get another boost we're still seeing a lot of propaganda with like being against communism being against soviets in particular um, being pro rearmament uh, and remakes of previous ufa films there also emerged this new genre called Heimat film which would be like homeland film um, again kind of speaking to that revisionist history a little bit and war films really got a boost here because of the Korean War as well. One thing to note here is that even though Western Germany film production is booming at this moment, those films are very rarely getting exported. It's mainly just staying in Western Germany unless there's some kind of like exception to the rule. And it's not like uh, purposefully not getting exported. It's just like no one has interest. Yeah. Yeah. Eastern Germany is continuing with Soviet-backed film production companies, but now Eastern Germany writ large is kind of seeing people leave for Western Germany because there's better economics over there. Already things were really tight for immigration, but even with those tight controls, they're seeing this kind of brain drain of sorts. So You get stricter border control between East and West and including in Berlin, um, tighter immigration. And ultimately, this trend leads to the Berlin Wall being created in 1961, Mm -hmm. which is a wall that was fully around Western Berlin to uh, keep Eastern German citizens from trying to escape into the West. Yeah. So I had mentioned that in, like, the 1950s, like, the early 1950s, we're seeing a huge increase of people going to the cinemas, mainly because they have extra cash. Well, 1956 was, like, the height of Western Germans going to cinemas, and then that started to kind of fall and decline. People just kind of like, you know, oh, that was neat. I'm good. I don't need to go see the next Charlie Chaplin film. (laughs)
0: Um, Probably not, but...
1: Uh, I also want to point out that in 1953, there were about a million television sets in mm. Western Germany. So not a huge amount, but yeah. it's going to increase through the 50s. So that could also be why attendance is going down. Now, it's not like dropping, but it's enough that people are like, oh, maybe we should kind of expand out what we're doing and look at genre films. So, for example, in 1959, there was an increase of like film noir genre from specifically the rialto production company Mm -hmm. um and i think that's likely why it's 1959 and now we're seeing this horror movie coming out
0: yeah so thank you for setting the context
1: yeah if anyone (laughs) wants more information about western germany and eastern germany history and film context uh feel free to email but uh I don't think it's super relevant.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I had forgotten like exactly when the Berlin Wall was built and I always forget that like, you know, things went on for quite a while before they built the wall. So yeah, we're actually like in a pre-wall period here, but we are talking about this is a West German film and so it was made in Munich. And to bring things back to that Alrauna remake that I mentioned uh, where they were, you know, the director said that people didn't want horror because like the memory of the war was too fresh. The reason they didn't want sex was the church. Like the church had gotten like really conservative and really like clamping down on like moral values and things like that. This began to change uh, in German film. Thanks to producers like Wolfgang C. Hartwig.
1: Mm, Yes, I saw some stuff about him.
0: Okay, yeah. So he was instrumental with the rise of exploitation cinema in West Germany. So his first film as a producer was a highly controversial 1953 documentary, Bis fünf nach zwölf, or Until Five Past Twelve, which uh, only used archival footage— to tell the story of the mass delusion of Nazism, a form of government that could only last until five past 12, uh, which I believe is the time that Hitler shot himself. Okay. This film was immediately banned by the government. Like it came out and people were upset. And so it was immediately banned. It was also sued by the rights holders of the footage. Sure. Now, a lot of this was like newsreel footage um, and archival footage. It was one of those like, we'll hear the Nazis like explain themselves in their own words kind of thing. But a lot of the footage was taken from like old Lenny Riefenstahl films and like Triumph of the Will. Mm -hmm. And her position was like, that's my movie. You can't just take footage from my movie. And Wolfgang Hartwig's position was that movie was state funded. It belongs to the people.
1: They are both in the right (laughs) in that sense, I guess.
0: So, yeah very controversial documentary but it taught uh, hartwig the age-old adage that no publicity is bad publicity and so he began producing a series of films he called zitten filma or vice films yeah uh, which he made 15 of from 1957 to 1962 all economically produced quickly and cheaply you know your standard exploitation film stuff
1: absolutely
0: uh and while, like, Hartwig would eventually, like, go on to do different things, um, like, after the Zitten films, he went straight into, like, softcore porn for a little while, and then...
1: That sees a rise in the 1960s. Yes,
0: that's a, that's a 1960s thing. Um, and then after that, he, like, parlayed all of that success financially into becoming, like, a legitimate... Movie producer, um, like rising up to become the producer of the big budget World War II epic Cross of Iron, directed by Sam Peckinpah in 1977. Um, and, I, and he lived until like 2015. Like, he did well for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is in the context of his exploitation films that we must understand this episode's movie. Okay. So, um, with an eye to stirring up controversy, we now can understand sort of uh, why produce a horror film and also like why... Why title
1: it The Naked Woman yes. with Satan?
0: Yes. Uh, yes, why, why it has this provocative title of uh, Die Nachte Zaten," um which should really be understood as only metaphorically related to the movie's plot. Okay. <laughs> the screenplay uh, is sort of a derivative plot about a mad scientist swapping heads to give a woman with uh, kyphosis a new, different body, and it was written by Victor Travas who also directed the movie. So, you know, cheap. Travas was born to Jewish parents in Russia in 1896, at least according to him. Uh, there are also sources that indicate he was born to Hungarian parents in Switzerland, Now, Travass would tell you that uh, as a young man, he learned the art of film craft by working in the crews of director Sergei Eisenstein in the 1910s.
1: Sure, he did.
0: Or, if you believe that he was born in Switzerland instead of Russia, then sources show that he graduated with a degree in architecture uh, in Switzerland, in Geneva. So, you know, who's who's to say what's real? But what we do know for sure... (laughs) is that Travass moved to Berlin in the mid-1920s and uh, joined the film industry there uh, at first as an art director before rising up to become a writer and then a director. Uh, He did a number of feature films in Germany in the 20s and 30s. His 1931 anti-war film Niemandsland was banned by the Nazis in 1940. And so Travass fled to Paris and then slightly later in 1940 fled to the United States. In the United States, he worked solely as a writer. Um, He did a bunch of different uh, movies there, including Song of Russia in 1954, a very popular pro-Russia propaganda movie that suddenly just never got shown again in the United States after the end of World War II. Um, And he also uh, wrote The Stranger uh, for Orson Welles in 1946, for which he was Mm -hmm. nominated for an Academy Award.
1: That's a very good movie.
0: Very good movie. Dross returned to Germany in 1959, and this was his first film back. He would work on a few other low-budget productions after this uh, before retiring, and he passed away in 1970. The film's cinematography is by Jörg Krause, um, whose career in film stretches back, like, as far as Travass, like, back to the 1920s. Uh, he worked regularly in Germany on German films throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and he is best known in the West as the cinematographer of Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, uh, which was shot in Munich. Now, in bringing up Jörg Krauss, I have to bring up a, uh, like, reality of watching this movie, which is that there's like a non-zero chance that people who worked on this movie were Nazis. Mm -hmm. Um, Denazification could not go as far as some people wanted it to. In the immediate post-war era, it was like, cool, let's get rid of
1: everyone who was a Nazi. That ended up being like... So 10% of the German population were card-carrying members, let alone people who... like.
0: Supported the cause. Supported it
1: and and all of that. Well, and then the issue became like,
0: what do you, what is a Nazi? Like, where do you draw the line? Because, for example, in the film industry, there was sort of this attitude of like, well, the film industry was controlled by the Nazis. It was, you know, Goebbels' propaganda machine. So, like, obviously, if you fled Germany and went and worked in other countries during the war, we'll invite you back. You know, Fritz Lang, come on home. But if you stayed in Germany during the war, well, then either you were a Nazi or you were someone who didn't mind working for Nazis and taking Nazi money to make Nazi-backed films, which means you were a collaborator, so you're still a Nazi. And it became this very difficult thing of, like, people being like, well, but, you know, I needed work, like, you needed, I needed food, I needed to put food on the table, like, what was I supposed to do? And a lot of, like, hemming and hawing, and, like, how do you draw the line, and, like, also, the problem started to become like, well, if we really want to get rid of all the Nazis, like, we're kind of all Nazi, like, we we all were here in the country, right? And so denazification kind of backed off after a while and started turning a blind eye to things because it was just, it became kind of clear that, like, we wouldn't have enough people left over.
1: Yeah, it tended to just focus on, like, heads of administration, maybe the subordinates, maybe. Yeah. Um, but by and large, uh, definitely not as far as some people would like, but it definitely is a complicated issue and where one person feels would not be the same. Yeah. Um, if you want to learn more about the gray lines about that deep space nine is a great (laughs) example (laughs) of really like dealing with those ideas and where that line is.
0: Um, (laughs) and so I'll, I'll just kind of say that like, you know, The other part of it, I think, too, was, like, heads of administration, people who did war crimes, and uh, also, like, you know, just like today's kind of, like, who gets canceled and who doesn't. It was, like, who do we want to make a big stink about? Who's a celebrity that nobody likes anyway? Like, that kind of stuff. Very political. So, yeah, all of which is to say that, like, I'm sorry, but I can't give you, like, an accounting of who... Yeah. Who made this movie maybe a Nazi or not. People like Jörg Krause who like worked regularly and didn't leave the country were the kind of people who, you know, were under suspicion and stuff. But But, didn't
1: like Paul Wegner stay and he like helped people escape and like helped shelter Jewish people and stuff. So that
0: yeah. There was a lot of like, but then there was a lot of people who were like, oh yeah, I was totally a Schindler kind of guy sort of, like, rewriting their own history. Yeah. Um, All of which is to say, like, yeah, can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs, I guess. The other problem, too, is guys like Jörg Krause, who had been around since the 20s, it's like, we need that experience to get the country back on its feet. Yeah, there's a lot of... It's a complicated issue. So, you know, if you're going to watch this movie along with us, just know that, like, some of the people who made this movie might have been Nazis. We don't know. Hard to say. Moving on to the cast... Uh, The villainous mad scientist of the piece is played by Horst Frank, who was born in 1929 and acted in over 100 movies between 1959, between 1955, and his death in
1: 1999.
0: Wow. Yeah. So he had, like, blonde hair and blue eyes, and that marked him as a villain in post-war German films, um, particularly, like brutal psychopaths without senses of conscience or morality huh yeah he had like a whole career that was basically made out of being like villains and heavies um the same year he appeared in this film he appeared in stalingrad Hunde wollt ihr ewig lieben or dogs do you want to live forever
1: yes that was a title that came up as being like this is a really big deal movie yeah
0: Um, so that was fairly early in his career. This is fairly early in his career, but like, this is a dude who like into the nineties would still appear as like the bad guy on like cop shows and things like that. The role of the good mad scientist, uh, is (laughs) played. So,
1: So maybe just like a little perturbed. Right. Not just mad.
0: Um, uh, is played by Swiss French actor, Michel Simon, and he was born in 1895 And he worked his way up from circus performer to respected stage actor to film star over the course of the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. He appeared in numerous films from high-profile directors throughout his career. But in 1954, um, he suffered an unfortunate accident when uh, some makeup was used on him that had tainted dye that was toxic. And the result was that the left-hand side of his body and face became partially paralyzed.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. He worked less frequently after that. And he took the role in this movie because he believed that a low-budget German horror picture from West Germany would not get wide distribution, as you were just explaining. And so, like, he needed the money and no one's going to see this anyways, and he took the role. Uh, He was, however, proven wrong when Die Nachte Undersaten was a hit, and it was picked up for release in Europe, North America, and even then, like, re-release in West Germany a few years later. So, you know.
1: So hopefully he's raking in those royalties?
0: I guess. um, Despite the disability, Simon continued to act until his death in 1975. Just like... You know, he was only appearing in five films a year instead of 20. Yeah. So uh, Die Nacht und was released on July 24th, 1959 in Germany. It would be released in the United States under the more accurate, if less provocative title, The Head, on October 11th, 1961. It was then later re-released in West Germany under the even less accurate and even more provocative title, Des Zaten's or The Devil's Naked Woman Slave. Uh, and yeah, the movie was a hit on both sides of the Atlantic, largely thanks to its very low production budget.
1: Yeah. If it only costs 10 bucks... Oh, sorry, 10 Deutschmark. Right. Then uh, you're going to always make a profit.
0: Exactly. Um, So you can find the original German version of the film under the second title on YouTube. um, And you can find the English version, The Head, dubbed uh, on Tubi.
1: Okay. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, Tubi is free. But you can also head on over to ScreamScenePodcast.com for our YouTube playlist. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss Nacht under satten from 1959 directed by Victor Travas
0: see you on the other side everybody <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Die Nacht und der Satin from 1959, directed by Victor Travas. Ben, first thoughts?
0: I think we're going to have a hard time because based on your vibe at the end of the movie, I got the sense you didn't like this.
1: That was fine.
0: Um, whereas I actually, I have to admit, did like this.
1: Its uh, score is a little odd sometimes. It's challenging.
0: Yeah, that's certainly one of the the aspects of this movie that I would consider challenging. It's got some issues. Um, Weirdly enough, the more I watched, the more I liked, and the more I was like, oh, this is a horror movie. Okay.
1: Yeah, no, I would agree it's a horror movie.
0: Yeah. There were stretches of the movie where I wasn't sure, but
1: Mm. Mm.
0: uh, the story is very familiar.
1: Yes. Let me lay out the land of our characters. We have Dr. Abel, who is our older scientist. Dr. Burke, who is his um, mentee scientist. Uh, I was like, what is the opposite of mentor? Right, mentee. And then they also have Bert, who is an engineer. He had some like brain experiment done to him, like some brain surgery, so he doesn't talk a lot, but he does still talk. Dr. Ood, who is our young Aryan scientist.
0: Yeah, he, he graduated from Slytherin.
1: Yes. We have uh, Irena, who is Burke's cousin and is a nurse slash maybe a nun.
0: Um, yeah, there are like a lot of nun-run hospitals.
1: Uh so she's a nun nurse. Yeah. We got none more nurses. <sighs> and she has a hunched back. And then we have uh, Lily, who is a burlesque dancer, and Paul, who is Lily's love interest and an artist uh i know that that's like a long list of characters but it'll all make sense shortly um so
0: it'll get whittled down
1: (laughs) so we see dr ood arrive to dr abel's and rather uh he arrives and then spies before making his presence known and so as he spies and overhears he sees Irena. He spies on Irena talking with her cousin, Dr. Burke, at Dr. Abel's. And Dr. Burke shares that, like, yeah, we're going to be doing some experiments that, you know, kind of challenge me ethically. uh, So I'm not too sure about them. Uh, And Irena is like, yeah, so what about the possible surgery for my hunched back? And Burke is like, yeah, Dr. Abel says that, like, we could probably do it. It would be successful. Um, I'm still not 100% sure about it. Dr. Ood comes in, he arrives, and uh, he gets to meet Dr. Abel. So Dr. Abel is, like, our older scientist. He's running this situation. Abel explains that, like, yeah, Dr. Ood, like, he's well-known in the field of surgery, I guess.
0: Um, he was recommended to Abel by a professor whose name is escaping me currently.
1: And Abel's like, so where are you from, Ood? And Ood's like, mysterious background. Yeah. I was found as an orphan on a shipwreck. My name is the name of the ship. Definitely not weird at all. Yeah. You can trust me. And then Oud asks Abel about a an experiment he did where he basically decapitated a dog but kept the dog head living through this mysterious concoction it called Chemical X. Serum Z, but yeah. Now, it's kind of set up that Dr. Abel has a heart condition and he's hoping to get this uh, heart transplant done on himself from this um, traffic crash victim. Um, So Abel has put Dr. Ood in charge and gets prepped for surgery. Now, while Abel has been like put unconscious for surgery, uh, the man that they were getting the heart from dies. And Burke is like, Well, now we can't do it. It's too risky. And Oud is like, Fuck you, Burke. And they get into a fight because Oud wants to do it anyways. And in the struggle, Oud ends up killing Burke. So Oud then like, goes and hides Burke's body in the nearby forest, comes back, and uh, you know, makes it look like Burke left in a hurry because he was like mad about the experiment or something. And then Oud, with Bert, goes through with the ex- um, heart transplant. But it goes awry because the man is dead. And so in a quick uh turn of events, we see Dr. Abel awaken as just a head on mm-hmm. a table. Yep. Connected with these tubes and water drip lines and all these things. That old chestnut. You no, know, that's a that's a head. Abel is like horrified by this. Um it's it's pretty effective.
0: Yeah, he's very kill me, kill me now about it.
1: Yeah. So Bert and Evena are asking about Burke being like, you know, it's weird that he just left without giving word to me, his cousin. Um, but there's still no word. Meanwhile, Oud asks Abel, like, so like I, I kept you alive for the scientific community. We need your brain. Like you have so much knowledge, like telling me what it goes into chemical X. Like, how do I make it? And Abel's like, I'm not telling you anything. Just kill me. I just want to die. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Ood has been going to the Tam Tam Dance Bar, uh, watching Lily um, perform, and we get, do get to see her performance of a dance routine called "Dinokte under Satan."
0: Yeah, so that's how we justify the title. Yeah, this one scene.
1: This one scene. Well, I think it works as well for the it, rest of the movie, metaphorically but metaphorically like, speaking. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so he he sees Lily, and we get to know lily a little bit um through scenes with her and her love interest paul so paul is like a an artist and a sculptor whose dad happens to be a judge um lily uh you know has is a dancer that's it um they have like a love-hate relationship fighting on and off again kind of situation
0: yeah he's possessive of her even though her job is as a striptease dancer and she clearly started dating him because she thought that, like, dating the son of a judge would be, like, a path to riches. And instead, he's like, no, I want to be a starving artist. So, yeah, they, they, they have problems as a couple.
1: <laughs> so Dr. Ood goes to Lily and he's like, hey, Lily. And she's like, do I know you? You seem familiar. And turns out they have a history, namely that Lily's real name is Stella, and uh, she killed her husband via poison, and then Dr. Oud helped do some like cosmetic surgery on her so she could like go into hiding
0: and Oud isn't his real name either we it's find Dr. Out.
1: Brandt, yeah. yes. At the same time, um, Ood is becoming increasingly focused on Irena for doing that experiment to remove her hunched back, um, and basically manipulates her into agreeing to do it with him. Otherwise, she's pretty like put off by him and like doesn't trust him at all. So Oud goes and gets Lily drunk and then swaps the bodies and heads. Yeah. So um Irena wakes up with uh, on Lily's body. Apparently, it's been three months since the actual surgery. And she is like, oh, wow, like I can't believe like you got rid of my hunched back. And um, this feels like a completely new body, (laughs) but doesn't actually know. And Ood kind of like, you know, does the double innuendo of like, yeah, you'll find that this body has lots to learn from or whatever. But then also makes a move and does try to rape her.
0: Yeah, he basically takes kind of a like... You're I'm, my
1: creation. Yeah,
0: I made you, so you're mine to you do owe with, me. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But also Lily was quite promiscuous. And so I think he's also hoping that there's a bit of Lily's personality,
0: like yeah.
1: <laughs> body habits, because she like smokes without realizing it. So the I think movie, there's an element of that.
0: Yeah, the movie does a little bit of like an Orlax body thing here with with Lily, but it's it's like a subtle element.
1: Yeah. Now, Irena, as set up, she's a nun and nurse. And so she's like, why is this person coming on to me? And is like, why are you attacking me? So she goes and runs through the house and finds a way to escape. But she discovers uh, some clothes and a purse that turn out to be Lily's and has like Lily's identification card, the brochure for like where she works, that sort of thing. So to like learn more about Lily, Irena goes to the Tam Tam dance hall and there she meets Paul and she's trying to learn more about Lily and Paul's like, oh, from behind you, I thought you were Lily, but I guess not because this face is much more pretty. Totally hitting on her. Irena learns that Lily died three months ago. Her body was mangled underneath a train and, you know, she's getting to know Paul a little bit better. Uh, She agrees to sit and model for him and he notices that uh, she has the same beauty mark as Lily so totally freaked out by like all these continued like coincidences with Lily's body basically uh Irena goes back to Oud and you know is like tell me what you did like I know that you killed Lily because I saw her stuff like what is going on and Dr. Oud reveals it all swapped your bodies Lily's dead and she gets to see Abel's head Uh, And Abel is immediately like, kill me, (laughs) take these tubes out. So then we get a bit of a back and forth of Irena getting locked up. She runs away and escapes to Paul, tells him everything. In doing so, uh, she and Paul sleep together. Oud had followed her and starts a fire in order to kidnap Irena again and is like oh uh, you're too good for me but not too good for the artist like something like that like he's jealous of Paul and you know says these phrases that make it sound like he's like saying that you're under my control which if this was like a universal movie he would literally have hypnotic control but he doesn't indicate that here and he ends up raping arena twice paul goes to the police because he knows everything and the police are like why would we believe you about any of this and then they realize oh he's a judge's son so i guess we better look into this so they head over to dr oud's house at that same time bert and abel are conspiring against oud overhears and ends up shooting bert and then in a manic rage kills abel and then sets fire to the house just as the cops are arriving. Um, Irena gets rescued by Paul, and Ood, in this kind of manic daze, heads up to the roof and then like walks off of the roof and falls and dies. Uh, and the film ends with Paul saying to Irena, uh, don't worry, you're free from him. Now, I forgot where in the story we get a little bit more of Dr. Ood's backstory, but... We do see that like whenever it's a full moon, he begins to get a little manic. And again, if this was a universal movie, he would be turning into a werewolf um because we hear howls and stuff. That doesn't happen. He just appears to be um performing as if like he literally is a lunatic. Yes. made crazy by the moon. He does tell us that like he was experimented on and like his brain was experimented on by a Dr. Harkness or something like that. It's Harker.
0: the, the perf- it's, I don't remember his name exactly, but it's the professor who he claimed at the start of the movie recommended him to Abel.
1: Yeah. And this professor made Dr. Ood a genius, but also subject to these fits of manic behavior. hmm and as I already set up, he changed Stella's face into Lily's. Yeah. So that's Dr. Ood's backstory, but we, we do get that established.
0: Yeah. And that's why he ends up like walking off the roof because it's a full moon out and he sees that and he goes into one of these manic fits.
1: And that's the end. So yeah, I,
0: I liked this movie. There's a bit that <laughs> made me laugh uh, that you, you glossed over, which is fine, where people keep asking about Burke and yeah. like Burke's disappearance eventually Bert finds Burke uh which is how he clues in that um Ood is bad news but earlier uh Ood is booed. Ood is booed. Irena, before the surgery calls up Ood and she's like do you know what's happened to my cousin and Ood's like yeah we still haven't heard from him it's been 2 weeks and she's like well did you put in a missing persons report and he's like of course I put in a missing persons report and then he gets off the phone with her and phones the police to put in the missing persons report. Yeah. And it just reminded me of like, you know, every time that someone has had a significant other be like, hey, have you taken out the trash today or emptied the dishwasher? And, you know, the other person is like, oh, yeah, I've absolutely done that. And then like immediately quickly goes and does it.
1: Sure. <laughs> um, Another kind of funny thing with the police. I don't know if this was just the sound effect they used or <laughs> what cops... And their sirens actually sounded like in Western Germany, but uh, it sounded like a clown car wee wow. It,
0: it, it did. It also kind of just sounded like someone on a trombone yeah. going like.
1: Wah, wah, wah. So it was a little comical, which mm-hmm. undercut the climax. The other thing that would undercut the movie is um, the odd scoring. Yeah. I think, so they go for like this jazzy every now and then and i think that works on certain scenes where it's used particularly when it's used with lily um and her dance scenes and um there are other moments where like you can tell it works but there are other moments where it's like this is supposed to be tension and instead you're making it sound like a film noir jazzy yeah. kind of vibe
0: i think if you, if you're trying to like get an idea of this score. It's very film noir. It's very like crime drama. It's like kinda has two modes. It's got like a uh like syncopated kind of like we're in a chase scene mode and it's got like a, a sexy babe just walked in the room kind of mode. If you're familiar with like kind of how the Batman show in the 60s was scored, it's it's similar. The thing about this is like it makes the movie kind of comical. It undercuts the mood. But I wonder how much of that is because we in 2023 associate that style of music. This
1: this, this episode's coming out in 2022.
0: Okay. We here in 2022 uh, associate that style of music with like certain genres. We're like, we hear that and we go, that's sexy lady music, or that's like chase down an alley music because of the way that music has been like stereotyped to certain genres versus... Like in 1959, that's just what contemporary music sounded like. Sure. Like it, it it almost feels like, you know, if in 50 years someone was watching a movie from the 2010s and they were like, why is there so much synth in this score? This isn't a sci-fi movie. Like sure. that kind of thing.
1: So I will like remind folks that film noir was seeing a resurgence in Western Germany, particularly in like 1958 and 1959. Mm -hmm. So perhaps they were trying to use the jazz to emulate that because they have never really done horror. And so that would be like a horror adjacent genre to kind of bring it in. Yeah. So that, that could be it. So in my notes, I have pacing written down, but I don't know if that's pacing because of the film's editing. Or pacing because the script is trying to do too much.
0: So I didn't have a pacing problem with this movie. This movie felt fine to me. You came out of the movie being like, that movie was three hours long. and Yeah, it
1: felt so long. Um,
0: that's usually like a cue to me that you didn't like it. Because um, hmm. that usually means that you were sitting there being like, oh, when is this going to be over? And for me, this movie felt very much like very 90 minutes. It felt even shorter, maybe like an hour of television. And I think my theory is uh, that what made the movie feel long for you is that this movie is very male gaze, um, mm-hmm. which like isn't surprising given its status as, you know, a Zitten Filma, right? One of these exploitation yeah. movies. Um, it's also like a little bit more than what we're used to. Like we talked about... Um,
1: yeah, we see a lady's belly button. <laughs> We'd never see that in America.
0: But even like, like there's, you know, the striptease scenes, um, which to be honest, like we've seen similar stuff by this point in like, um, Horrors from the Black Museum, right. Had some of that kind of action going on. What felt newer to me was like stuff where Irena's like blouse is undone practically to like her belly button and she's like breathing heavily and you see like her breasts heaving and stuff and like lit so that you can see them and so on. So it, it feels like a little bit more than we're used to, presumably, because we're in Europe, I guess, and the, like... Oh, no, they were absolutely pushing yeah.
1: um, those boundaries.
0: But I think that... So, so for me, it's like, this was kind of expected, and for me, that male gaze stuff, like, there's too much of this in this movie, like, we stop the plot to, like, watch whole striptease routines, but... I think I'm less susceptible to it as like a thing that's going to make me go like, Oh, can we get on with this please? Than you are. Um, and so I suspect that's part of maybe why this movie felt arduous to you.
1: So here's the thing. Hmm. I understand like why male gaze exists in movies and particularly why it exists in this movie. Yeah. Because of the, the characters we have, both Dr. Ood and, uh, Lily, um, and the roles they play as, like, characters and all of that. Like, I, I understand why we're sexualizing Lily. Mm-hmm. I understand why Dr. Ood is attempting and then succeeding in raping our nun, heroine. Yeah. But it just felt so like every guy yeah. that she meets after her transformation wants to get with Irena. And it's like, I get it, but also, like, can we just, like, take a fucking step back, man, because she's also, like, young and naive, and it just felt like Paul was taking advantage of that. Dr. Ood was absolutely taking advantage of that, and I just felt so, like, yeah, I get it. Oh, like, I was born yesterday kind of sense of, like, sexuality absolutely ties in with that male gaze thing, but it was just, I wanted a little bit less of the male gaze from the camera mm. while still keeping the male gaze from Dr. Ood. I, I would've, it would have been nice from less from Paul, but I understand who he is as a character. And part of that is also I wanted more from Karen Krenke, who played Arena in the climax. Like, she's just in a daze. Yeah. And she, like, so Paul comes in and he's like, hey, I'm rescuing you. The house is on fire. Where's Dr. Ood? And she's like, oh, I, I don't know. And like part of that is that moment for her character. And she literally says, like, I'll never be free of him. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll never be able to escape him. But it just felt so like, I don't understand. There wasn't enough from her or that the movie allowed for her to portray of turning into that kind of abused victim um, and under his control.
0: So I, I agree with parts of what you're saying. I think the use of sexuality in this movie is one of its strengths and one of its weaknesses. And I think that sometimes it's like undercutting what it's trying to do while it's also, I think doing really interesting things. One of the things I liked about this movie on a broad level is that like, we've seen this plot before, right? We've seen the, you know, hunchbacked assistant who's a woman who just wants to be beautiful and blah, blah, blah. And we've been kind of talking up the misogyny in this movie and, you know, talking about those rape scenes and stuff. I will say that, like, the sexual assaults in this movie are very... um,
1: Cut to black. We come back and they're, like, smoking in bed, but we don't actually see any... Well, and and
0: even, like, the the way it's forced, it's very, um, by modern standards, gentle is the word I'll use. It's very, like, um, it's not very violent is I guess what I'll say. It's not very intense. Um, It's still, I think could be triggering for people who've been through experiences like that, but it's not like we're not doing torture porn shit here. What is, I think even more prevalent in this movie and might be even more difficult for certain audiences is this is an extremely ableist movie. Yes. Um, Everything about Irena's whole plot is, you know, your body is useless and you're going to have a normal body. It's not just like you're going to have this idealized sexy body, which is what she gets, but it's like, this is a normal body. And now that you have a sexy body, you can be a normal woman who can fall in love. Cause that was impossible before. Yeah, And like, to be fair, this is a movie, you know, set in 1959 and these were the cultural attitudes of that time that were placed upon women and that's part of arena's like whole tragedy and storyline so it's not like untrue but it is something that i think for a modern audience might be like very difficult to get through it's something that we saw in those old 1940s universal movies as well but it was kind of downplayed and it was downplayed there in the same way that a lot of other things in these stories were downplayed what i like about this movie even though it, it also makes the movie really difficult, is that this movie is much more, in my opinion, honest behind the human character truths in the premise of this story. Like, this movie is treating its characters as people with psychology, rather than just, like, motivations. So we have this idea of the severed head that gets kept alive, right? And in a lot of the movies we've seen that before, the person who has the severed head is like an egomaniac who's like, you must keep me alive after dead. You know, I'm Nostradamus or I'm the billionaire dude or whatever. And like, you have to keep me alive. And I find it much more psychologically believable that you'd be like, no, this sucks.
1: Yeah, I did really like that shift. Mm. And I I do have to say that like Horst Funk as... Dr. Ood mm-hmm. was very good. Yeah. If he leans into it really hard.
0: Absolutely. Uh, if you've ever wanted to see like German Tom Felton as like a crazy, super genius, evil scientist, this is the movie for you. But like he delivers on the cold cruelty, the arrogant entitlement, the manic ravings, the whole thing. Like he is playing the role to the hilt. So, you know, I liked seeing that believable characterization. And then with Irena what I appreciated was like being honest about kind of what's behind the idea of like, well, I want a beautiful body. I don't want to be in this body because it is sexual, right? It yeah. is sexualized. And like something that I appreciated was like, you know, arena's super suspicious of everything from the moment she wakes up. Cause she's like, well, these aren't my hands. And you know, Oud's kind of gaslighting her with like, well, I did a ton of other surgeries to do other shit for reasons. Um, and so she's put off by it and like, he tries to sexually assault her and she, you know, runs away and she's scared, but then she gets home and she looks at herself in the mirror and there's a whole scene of her just being like, Oh damn, like, fuck, I'm sexy and kind of just reveling in that. And, um, there's something really interesting about the idea of like, you gave a striptease dancers body to a nun. And now she's like, you know, there's almost this feeling of like before, yeah, she was like a chaste, innocent virgin or whatever, but like what choice did she have? And now it's like, Oh, I could go out to a club and look sexy and and be alluring. And she's kind of enjoying that until it, it kind of goes wrong for her. So I liked the way that it was being kind of honest on a human level with like what's going on behind these old premises, but it, it, breaks down and it falls apart in a few places and I totally agree with you on on some of your points um there's one I'm going to dispute but I totally agree with you on some of your points one is um like Horst Frank great Dieter Epler as Paul I found to be a weak link in the movie but I'm not sure if that's his performance or if it's the writing I get that they were going for tortured artist. And I also got the feeling like they were in the initial scenes with him and Lily kind of trying to throw Lily under the bus by showing her to be kind of bitchy and, you know, she killed her husband and whatever, so that maybe, like, the audience wouldn't mind so much when she dies, I guess. Like, we need to be focused on the tragedy of Irena and not be wanting, like, revenge for Lily or whatever.
1: Yeah, I think it would be a case of the guy's acting Mm. because I think he read the beginning part of Paul early in the script and was like okay that's who that character is and continues to play that kind of slightly skeevy person when he's dancing with Irena
0: yeah we have to kind of get a sense that Paul doesn't really like Lily or isn't happy in his relationship with Lily because otherwise the quick switch to Irena would seem really bad yeah the problem is is it still seems really bad because he's got the same entitled attitude about both of them. Like when it's Lily, it's like, I don't like other men looking at you. Only I should be able to objectify you. And then like Lily shows up and he's like, Oh, you have the same body as my ex-girlfriend. That means I can have sex with you. And the problem is, is like, I think it makes him too unlikable to a modern audience. Even if it is just kind of like that issue that we have with 1950s misogyny being taken as like normal in these movies, but the big problem it gives the movie as a whole is it means that there's not enough moral difference between Paul and Ood like yeah. they both feel entitled to Irena and Lily it's just you know
1: one, one to of, a greater extent yes
0: one of them's going to kill them and so i think that is a problem for the movie even though the movie's clearly like blind to that problem because of the misogynist society that it was made in
1: I want to hear what point of mine you want to dispute. I would love to hear it.
0: So, even setting aside the whole Orlock's body issue, um I actually find the psychological portrayal of Arena to be very believable. It just doesn't get enough attention.
1: Yeah, well I said that.
0: Yeah, yeah. um Arena should be the main character. Yeah. Like she should be our viewpoint character, but I think we spent the most time With Oud, if you like had a stopwatch. But I actually really liked Karen Kernke's performance. And I think that her state at the end of the movie, where she's kind of super traumatized, makes sense to me. And I totally agree with you that, like, not enough time is spent on it. But I think a really key moment in the movie is that moment that you characterized as kind of like Oud hypnotizing her, because she's been kind of buffeted back and forth this whole movie. And now she's stuck with Oud, and he's just given her a big speech about how he's like an insane superhuman and he's like, you're mine and I created you and everything about you. And you know, he gives a speech about like those three months when you were unconscious, like I was by your bedside the whole time. And like, you wouldn't even be alive if it wasn't for me. And I think it's believable in that moment that she's kind of broken because like he forces himself on her. We cut to some other stuff. We cut back and they're like, I think you characterized it as like the smoking in bed moment. Yeah. And he goes to kind of force himself on her again. And there's a really interesting moment where like he's caressing her body and she grabs his hand and puts it on her breast and lets him go in for the kiss. And I'm not saying that means like she wanted it. But to me, what that read as is like that moment of like...
1: Just get it over with.
0: And like, oh the only way I'm living through this is if I let him do what he wants. Yeah. Maybe this is all I'm good for now. Like he's given me this body, this body's for sex, I guess. Maybe this is all I have. And kind of giving in like that. And I found that a really believable arc. And I I liked the writing there. We just, the movie should be from her POV and not Oods.
1: Yeah, I felt like the movie didn't give enough space for me to really get that Mm. otherwise it just feels like she's just passing around and suddenly is like not even a character anymore
0: yeah i connected the dots to like how we got there um but yeah i would have liked to have seen more of it i don't think it's a problem with her performance i think her performance is in my mind dead on but the other way that the movie's male gaze undercuts its own story is you know it's an exploitation movie And so we get these frequent longing looks at both karen kernke and christiane maybach's bodies when she's a striptease artist or when lily's a striptease artist we see the whole routines there's a lot of shots of her in her underwear there's a lot of shots of her in slinky dresses and then when irena has her new body there's again a lot of shots of her in slinky dresses a lot of shots of her in her underwear the way the movie is like framed and lit is designed to draw attention to her, her body. And that's part of the story. And it's also part of like the genre. So I'm willing to like, forgive a lot of that, but it undercuts the movie because even though I'm not complaining about getting to look at both of these women who both have gorgeous bodies, it does let us notice that while they are both gorgeous, they have very different bodies. Yes. Um,
1: Christ- accentuated in different ways. Yes.
0: Christian Maybach's got the A. Uh, Karen Kernke's got the T. And it's just like, when your plot is supposed to be that these bodies are identical, but you're going to let us look at both of them for so long, your your male gaze is undercutting your story. It's undercutting your suspension of disbelief.
1: Sure. I don't think they were concerned about that.
0: No, I don't think they were either. But that's kind of my point, even, is yeah. that like, they're blind to a problem like that.
1: And yes, I, I get that it's like the genre and also like time period a little bit and also just the conventions of this particular story beyond it being horror. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just like, yeah, just a bit too much. I think if it had focused from Arena's point of view a bit more, it wouldn't have been so bad. But I think they would need to make the conscious choice for the camera to not be gazy.
0: I think that what we needed was an arc more similar and maybe it's because this is the 50s and we don't know how to do this yet but we needed an arc more similar to um seth brundle in the fly where at first it's like super awesome like he's like i'm strong and i'm fast and you know i can like rip like metal in two and walk up walls and shit this is dope and then it turns into body horror and i kind of needed it here for us to see arena be like, Oh shit. Like, damn, like I'm sexy and like, I'm hot and this is great. And then kind of realizing like, this isn't my body. And there are people who want me for my body. And like, that's gross, but also it's not even my body. They want me for a dead woman's body. And that like, you know, we needed to to play into that skeeziness a bit more before we go into ranking. I do want to quickly shout out some stuff that I did like about this movie. That contributed to my high opinion of it, which is that, you know, for a exploitation movie uh, with a low budget, you know, and I know what these kind of movies look like when they come out of the States, production design and lighting and camera movement is really effective in this film. Yes. Um, It really shows kind of how the director and the cinematographer's careers harken back to the 1920s.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, you can also see where some of these folks go in the future, like in the case of the producer doing softcore porn yeah. later, um, but also the route for the guy who plays Dr. Ood. Like yes. It absolutely makes sense for that.
0: Yeah. So I did really like um, this movie from like a filmmaking perspective.
1: Well, let's move on to ranking.
0: Okay. So um, I suspect I'm going to be higher than you. Um, I've got my range is about 20 movies or so
1: mine's like 14 so why don't I go first okay I was thinking about Horst Frank's performance as Dr. Oud and I really did like it and I was thinking about okay what performance felt comparable in terms of like how much it like held up the movie as Mm, well mm. um The other parts of this movie are also very good, so it wasn't, like, the only thing propping it up. But I was just thinking, like, what else was, like, similar in other films? And my eyes were drawn to Captive Wild Woman at number 151. Oh, sure. Because of John Carradine. And we originally ranked Captive Wild Woman, the very first Paula Dupree movie, very high as a result of John Carradine. Mm -hmm. And then reconsidered and moved it down. So I was like, okay, this feels like a good floor. Because everything else about De Nocta is much better right. than Captive Wild Woman.
0: Yeah, the The parts that Horst Frank aren't in are not stock footage from a different movie. Yes. Yeah.
1: Looking up, um, and actually last week's movie, uh, The Killer Shrews, is at 140. Mm. Um, but I felt like the making of this movie, the performances were better. So I mm. continued looking up. And then I came to... 137, Phantom of the Rue Morgue from 1954. That movie has, you know, a similar thing about um, a guy feeling ownership over women. And then he uses his orangutan to go kill them. Right. Um, But it also had like a lot of gore and it had, you know, the color to help with the shock of that. But I felt like that was a good ceiling for me um, because... That movie had misogyny, but it wasn't undercut by it, despite it also being like an adaptation of this really weird story. Got it. Um, So that's my range, 137 to 151.
0: Okay. So I am looking higher than you. Um, I was looking at other German movies on the list and trying to kind of balance from there. And what I ended up kind of taking for a starting point was Orlok's Honda at 123.
1: That makes sense.
0: And what I liked about this movie is like there's this implication that maybe Irena now kind of wants to smoke and dance and fuck because she's got Lily's body. But it's also just as psychologically believable that like, if you woke up one day with a sexy body, you'd be like, Oh damn, maybe I could like go out and do these things that I could never do before. And it have nothing to do with like the body's controlling you or whatever. Whereas like Orlok's Honda basically is like 70 minutes of Conrad Veidt looking at his hands in a very big room and going, my hands! And then like 20 minutes of the most complicated conspiracy you've ever heard of. So I kind of thought this was better, just from like a writing and storytelling standpoint, um, even if like the mood is kind of challenged by the score. So I started looking up from there and my eyes were drawn to... Uh, the undead at 113, which is right above Monster of Piedras Blancas. I felt like this was better than Monster of Piedras Blancas, which, you know, is also a very low budget effort, but I think this overcomes its low budget better. Um, So I made that my floor. I thought, you know, I could see an argument that the undead is better than this because it's more creative. Um, And then it was like, okay, well, where's my ceiling? What's definitely better than this? So I looked up. And I spotted Der Student von Prague from 1926 at 91, which is like the really expressionist version of Student of Prague. And I was like, that's definitely better than this. So my range ended up being 92 to 114. But if we look in between your range and mine, so the midpoint with our ranges is 125, Invisible Ghost, which is also right above Strangler of the Swamp which is Frank Vispar's remake of Fairman Maria that is not as good because it is completely divorced out of the context that made Fairman Maria good.
1: Yeah, I have to say that De is better than those movies. And actually, um, I was thinking about Orlok's Honda and Mm -hmm. the points you made made sense as well. So your floor was 114, um, I'm willing to consider like your range here. Cause I feel like it does make sense, especially looking at what else is here, like night monster, uh, fall of the house of usher. The undead is like, shit goes back in time. Yeah. And, and there's, there's like, the, the devil witch. and yeah, they can- have
0: the interpretive dance.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, definitely <laughs> more creative, but is it, uh, of a whole, mm. you know, everything in Dinocta is on brand. It's brand is, horror and sex but it is on brand for sure let's say
0: above the undead and below phantom of the convent then what do you think
1: i really like that because el Fantasma del convento has like that really spooky vibe it's very focused of being like this one night
0: Mm -hmm. whereas this
1: is like i'm not quite sure when or where we are there was a
0: scene at one point where uh, Paul is like, yeah, earlier tonight he did this thing. And I was like, that was earlier this same night? I would have thought that was weeks ago. Like, Yeah, yeah. especially
1: because your apartment was on fire. Like,
0: yeah.
1: Hello. It's a little bit more focused, a little bit tighter of its writing, and it has a full mummy mm-hmm. in it. Um, yeah, I like that.
0: Okay. So entering the list at the new number 113 is Denachte Undersaten, from 1959 directed by victor trevas
1: pretty good showing yeah if we're not having a horror movie for like 23 years like yeah. pretty good showing yeah for sure if you would like to see this list you can go to our website screamscenepodcast.com there you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today as well as our appeals box if you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over a social media channel where we exist as at screamscene. Uh, what's our
0: um, What's our hive? Screamscene. Okay. It's just at screamscene?
1: Yeah. I managed to snag it. Nice. Uh, on Twitter, we're at underscore screamscene. scene.
0: Gotcha. Scream Scene Updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. If you would like to leave the show a rating or review on one of those services, we would really appreciate it. Um, We also just appreciate you sharing the show with your friends um, through one of those aforementioned social media channels, or you can cut those out of your life altogether and just tell people about us the normal way, by talking to them. Uh, if you really like what we do and want to help us out a lot, uh, we would really appreciate it if you considered, uh, financially supporting the show. If you go to patreon.com slash podcast, you can sign up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the five and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content and patrons of all levels get to vote on our monthly horror adjacent bonus episode. Uh, what movie we're going to do for that episode this month's episode is going to be the nightmare before christmas will that episode come out before christmas magic eight ball says
1: well here's the thing it will always be before a christmas
0: true that's very true sarah i like where (laughs) your head's at um but if you want to vote in my
1: head is here on the table disembodied (laughs)
0: If you want to vote in January's poll, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast.
1: The theme is New Year, New Me, and currently it looks like Death Becomes Her is winning. Yes. So what are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Next week, Sarah, we have our third William Castle film Ooh. starring Vincent Price. It's The Tingler.
1: Ooh, I've always been very curious about this movie.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun we won't be able to experience it as it is meant to be experienced of course but uh that
1: would require shipping in special equipment yes
0: but it should be a good time creatures of the night
1: all right well we will see you then
0: bye bye